Good morning. It's a privilege to be with you this morning. And uh, my wife and I, we always know that if we want to get spoiled, come to Holland. Because the Phil Six and the Securitans and others, they spoil us when you get here. It's like going on a vacation, you know, like we get it once a year, but we, we really enjoy coming up here. It's good to see this morning Mark Chansky. Now I'll tell you something about Brother Chansky. We heard him years ago. The first time I heard him, I said, he's absolutely crazy. But, but it was his zeal, and we loved it. You know, absolute zeal and things from the Lord. And what blessed me this morning in Sunday school, I still heard that zeal is still there. And uh, I, I have to keep from calling him Pastor Chansky, but I'll tell you this, and like I told George McDermott, because I told him, I said, you're still Pastor McDermott to me. Because I, that's what I knew you as. And he said, call me George. I said, no, I got to call you Pastor McDermott. I'll call you George when we're doing something else. But the reason I say that is because when presidents go out of the office, they call them president the rest of their life. And so to me, a pastor is much more important than a president. And so I just thank him for the great word he brought to us the many times that he came to Louisville. And me and him have some good conversations together, and he's blessed us every time he's come, and hopefully he'll get down there again this, this, this year. But what I want to preach about this morning is out of 1 John chapter 4. What we're going to look at this morning is the part of the best known and best loved portion of the epistle of 1 John. One man says this about this epistle and this portion of the epistle that we'll read this morning he said, love finds in this portion its richest and fullest development. And the word love in all its forms occurs about 46 times all through the book of 1 John. And when you're reading the book of 1 John, what you're going to see is the love of God for man, the love of man for God, and the love of brethren for each other. They're all developed in all these passages as you get into 1 John. And so all of this is absolutely vital for the life of any church that names the name of Christ. And these passages, more than any other in John's epistle, speaks of John, and that's why people call him the apostle of love. Now, tradition has been preserved, and it says that John became old and infirm, and he could no longer preach, so they carried him in the church, and he, when they carried him in the church, he would over and over persist with exhorting the brethren with the exhortation, little children love one another. So his hearers wearied of him saying, saying it over and over again, and they asked him why he insisted on saying this so much on concerning the duty of their love for one another. John replied, he said, number one, he says, I say it all the time because it's God's command. And then he says this. He says, and if only this is done, it is enough. And I said, that's a good way to look at that. He said, because if you love one another as Christ has loved you, you have fulfilled the law. And that's why John said that. So let's read First John chapter 4, verse 7. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son in the world that we might live through him. But not, but his, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So what I want to begin with this morning is the first thing John says is, he says, beloved, let us love one another. And then he gives the reasons why we should love one another, because love is of God. And what he's saying here is that love springs from God. Love originates from God. You know, it's a disposition of life that originates from God's own nature. And John is talking about this love that comes from God. He's not talking about a love that the world would speak of. But this love that he's talking about, this love is specifically imparted to every believer when they are born again by the spirit of God. And this love that's imparted to us when we're born again by the spirit of God, it has to grow and it has to be developed. But as it grows and develops, we're more and more like our Savior and we love each other more and more, as the scriptures say. Romans 5, 5, uh, Paul says, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Or you could say the agape of God, because if you think about it this morning, only through the act of regeneration could we ever love one another with the love that comes from God. There's no other way that we could be able to do it where we were totally incapable, dead in sins and trespasses. There's no other way that we would love one another as Christ loved us. John says that everyone who loves, and what a proper way to, pronounce, to, a proper way to interpret that is, he says, and everyone who loves or everyone who is loving is born of God and they know God. Now, when he says those who are loving know God, he's saying here that they have a saving knowledge of God. They understand and they are acquainted with God. Anyone that's loving one another within a church, they are in fellowship with God. Now, if you've heard this word a lot, because the word that John will use a lot in his epistle concerning love is a common word for love. And that's the word agape. And then agape love is just more than just emotions. Agape love is more than just sentimentality. It is a principle by which we deliberately live. One man says it's a principle by which we deliberately live, and it has supremely to do with a man or a woman's will. It's a deliberate principle of the mind. And so what he's saying here is this love is a spontaneous love, This agape love is self-giving. It is indifferent to the merit of the worth of the object that is loved. I could put it down like this this morning. Agape love is the love of Christ for us in its purest form. And the reason I say that this morning, because Romans 5, 6, 8 said Christ died for the ungodly, for he for sinners and for his enemies. Christ died for a worthless, wretched people. And, and this love right here that we ha- we're talking about when we talk about this agape love, it is unconditional. It is an unearned love. When you read the word of God, you will see Christ did not die for righteous people. He did not die for saints because they would not need a savior. Christ died to save sinners. Christ died to make 
people righteous, to make people saints, to make people children of God. If you read Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 18, you will find that this is a description of the character of the people Christ came to die for. Now, I'm not going to read all that this morning, but it says there is none righteous, no, not one. And he goes on to say when he gets to the end of that passage, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Christ did not die for the righteous, but Christ died to bring sinners to repentance. He died for people who were totally undeserving of his love. Now, I'm saying all this because we're going to culminate this with the fact that you'll know why you need to love one another and why you'll be obligated to do that. But he said there's none righteous. There is no not one. Now, first John three sixteen. I'm going to give you some scriptures. You could just jot them down. John says there he says by this we know love. And when he says we know love, he's saying that we have learned what love truly is. He said, because he laid his life down for us. In other words, we know love in its nature because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. And because of this knowledge of what true love is, brethren, if God so loved us, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. If we understand what really love, love really is, then we'll follow the example of our Savior and lay down our lives for each other. Now, he says here in John three sixteen, he says, we know love. And he says, because he's laid down our life for each other. And he says, therefore, we ought to love one another. Now, this word ought is a strong word. It's not an optional word. You know, a lot of times when you speaking to people, they said, I ought to do this and I ought to do this. And that means that you may do it or you may not do it. But this word that he uses here means obligation. If you are a Christian, you're obligated to love your brother and your sister. You are in you are indebted to love one another. And so it simply means that we as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are obligated to reproduce the self-giving love of Christ mutually amongst one another. You know, when you look at the world today and it's full of all the hate and everything you see in the world, I come up with one thing that I would say. The only way that you're going to answer that problem is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other answer to that problem. You know, I tell people all the time, the world does not have a racial issue. The world has a a heart issue. It has, if if men and women were born again by the spirit of God, race would mean nothing. And when you become a Christian, race means nothing. You know, all those barriers fall down. And you start loving people. You know, me and her, we've been a lot of places and visit a lot of people that we did not know. But because everybody is born of the spirit of God and because everybody that we meet, the love of God has been shared abroad in their hearts by his Holy Spirit. It's just like the people at home. We can love one another without ever knowing each other. And so that's because of the work that Christ did on the cross for us. But. This, this love one another is a command passed down to us through the Apostle John from Jesus himself to his church. We are obligated to love one another. Now, I'm going to read a commandment. You know these commandments. I have so many that I could read that, you know, I just want you to jot this down. John 13, 14. He says, a new commandment I give to you, 
Now, this is not an option. This is a commandment. He said that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, that's an interesting passage of scripture. You say, well, how did Christ love me? Because however Christ loved me, I'm to love my brother or sister. Number one, he loved you mercifully. He loved you sympathetically. Christ loved you, and I like this one right here, willingly. Christ loved you sacrificially. That is how Christ loved you. But this is the key to the whole thing about Christ loving you. Christ loved you joyfully. You ought to be happy to love one another. And, you know, a lot of times we, we make a, a, I'm going to say a drudgery out of love. Yeah, I'll do it. You know, the Bible says I have to do it. I don't want you loving me like that. I want you, I want you joyfully loving me. You know, because that's the way Christ loved us. You know, and Christ loves us joyfully even when we are still sinning against him and breaking his laws and things like that. But he joyfully went to the cross at Calvary. And that was his love that pushed him there. And then John goes on to say in John 13, 35, he says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, when we love one another, it's one of the best testimonies we have as a witness to this world. And it will be clear to all men that men that we belong to Christ and that we are followers of the son of God. And because we have such love for one another, which is totally alien from the love of the world, you know, the world will see it and it will cause people to flock to Christ. Because if your gospel is not portraying the word love, there's something wrong with it. And they're going to see that as we live together, because all I've ever heard all my life, well, all they do down at the church is fight. When we first got saved, <laughs> I laugh about these things. We first got saved, and man, I'm excited, and I got zeal. I'm ready to go to the house of God. So we went to the first church meeting. They almost came to fisticuffs. And I'm going, what have I gotten myself into here? You know, this is the way the world operates and things like that. And it was over, and you and I believe this, it was because they had miscounted something by a penny in the budget. And two men almost got in a fight over that. And so me being a young Christian, I'm going, huh. You know, I thought I was thinking about Christianity a totally different way. But, you know, it didn't turn me away. But I'm just saying that, you know, this obligation to love one another is simply because of the way Christ loved us. Now, people will often say he or she, they are such a loving person. And you can say that about people. But that should be said about all Christians. They are such loving people. They are Christ-like. They can, when you say that about all Christians, I say it this way, they can't help but be loving because of the one who they follow, because they follow love himself. And so we should love just like he loved us. Now, when John tells them that they need to love one another, the reason for this command is not necessarily because these brethren were disobeying this command and they were unloving toward each other. Now, when he says this, he's talking to people that were Gnostic heretics. And if you read about the Gnostic heretics, because this gospel is a lot about them, and I'm not going to talk about that this morning. But if you read about that and you, t- you see what the Gnostics were all about, they were the epitome of an unloving attitude. The Gnostics were known to be arrogant, 
contemptuous. They were exclusive and they were proud. Everything that speaks to the uh, lack of love, this is what they were. And I want to say this about love this morning. Love begins with humility. You will never love like Christ's love until you humble yourself. And, you know, look on the things of others more than your own. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you know that that's a major commandment. Do you know how much you love yourself? Every time you're in the mirror, you tell yourself how much you love yourself. You know, like you're taking care of yourself, you're feeding yourself. You know, everything that you do to take care of your well-being in this world is love for yourself. There's nothing wrong with that. But what God is saying, I want you to love your neighbor that way. And I want you to display that kind of love for him and that kind of care for him and her or whoever's in this world. But the work of humility begins in us when we grow in humility in order to grow in our love for each other. You must grow in that humility. You must not just be humble one time. You continually to humble yourselves before each other. The answer to that problem is in Philippians 2, 5. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He says, because he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. So Christ stooped and he lowered himself to the condition of of a servant, and he did it for us. That's the greatest display of love that you'll ever see. One man says this, he says, the death of the cross was the greatest act of love in the history of mankind, and there is nothing that can compare to this. There is nothing that can surpass this love that Christ showed at the cross. He also says that the death of the cross was the greatest act of humility and obedience to God you know, that took place in the history of the world. So it's going to be impossible to love the brethren without humility and servanthood. And we must humble ourselves to truly love our neighbor as ourselves and to love one another as Christ has loved us. So John in this letter, when you read this whole letter, I'm just telling you bits and pieces of this because I've been in a series on this. He's rebuking these false teachers because of their arrogant, unloving attitude that was creeping amongst the people of God. And they, they were very arrogant about their knowledge. They thought they had all knowledge and things like this. And John is rebuking this attitude. I saw a thing on the Internet because you can't believe everything you see on the Internet. But these people were exposing this great preacher that's in the world that has thousands and thousands of people that follow him. And he was talking about the arrogance of this man to have all these people following him. And so what it is, is they he worked for him and they get so much mail from all these people. They have to have this big mail room and you get all these letters coming in. And these people send these letters. They're supposed to be prayer requests that he is supposed to, every one of them, pick up and, and pray over. Well, this guy says, number one, said they don't pray over all these letters. He said they'll lay hands on the pile and say it's prayed for and move on. But what they do do when these letters come in is they open them and get the checks out of them to make sure you get that counted and get it ready to go. But I thought it was interesting that he said that this man was so stuck on himself that these people that work for him, he said, when they, him and his wife walked through the room, they weren't allowed to look at them or talk to them. And I'm going, well, 
that's totally unchristian because he has put himself way above them from what he should be. But there's other problems with this ministry anyway. But I'm just saying that love will humble itself the same as Christ humbled himself and went to the cross at Calvary. Now, John goes on to say that he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And this is the negative side of this. To know is to mean to have a knowledge and true understanding of God. See, our understanding when we're unsaved is darkened and we are alienated from the life of God. And when we come to Christ, that's when we learn what love really is. And John is straight up. He's saying that if you are not actively loving the brethren, and John is straight up. I like him. I like this book. But he's saying that you are not a Christian. And he says it in other places in this book. First John 2, 9, John says this. He who says that he's in the light and hates his brother, and I'm going to put up his, or his sister, is in darkness until now. And then 1 John 2.10, he who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling. And then he says this in verse 10, chapter 3. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. In other words, they are distinguished from everybody else. He said it's made clear who they are. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, but he taxed this on. He said, nor is he who does not love his brother or his sister. So it is an obligation that we love one another. And John boils it down to that you have no proof that you are saved if you don't love one another. Now, when I talk about love this morning, I'm not talking about compromising the message. You know, you know, we're to speak the truth in love. I'm not talking about a sentimentality type love that has no substance to it this morning. If you really want a good definition of what biblical love looks like, read 1 Corinthians 13. Because I tell people all the time at church, I said, love can be really hard. It involves forgiveness. It involves humility. It, it, it involves everything that we don't want to do. And that everything that we don't want to do, Christ did 100 times for us, more than 100 times. But that's what love is. And if you read 1 Corinthians 13, you may find out that you don't have the love that you think you have. I mean, just because you speak to somebody all the time or you're cordial and everything and we all should be that way, that is fine. But you don't find out what love really is. And I'm going to say it this morning, understand me the right way, till you join a church. And then you understand how you need to display what love really is. I... I'm amazed at the displays of hate that you can see in churches sometimes. And, you know, I'm going like, are you a Christian? I mean, I, I can understand you having a hard time with people. And it's hard to get over some things and things like that. But I will say this, and I'll say it dogmatically this morning. The Christian may struggle with it. He may fight with it. But he will come to the point of forgiveness. And that's what the world does not want to do this day. And that's the whole complete spirit of the world. It's an unforgiving spirit. It is an unloving spirit. And what John is saying throughout this whole epistle is that is of the devil. And that's exactly what it is. So now in this letter, John talks about this side. And I really love this side. But this is the positive side. In verses 4, 9 to 11, he talks about the greatness of God's love for us. 
Now, I'm telling you all this this morning because it's going to culminate, culminate where we need to be. What he does in this letter now, he changes a course from commanding us to love one another to pointing out God's great love for us. In Ephesians 2, 4, Paul says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And then 1 John 3, 1, he says, what manner of love is this that the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God? So the question that you should ask all believers all the time, specifically if you're a preacher, and it, nobody can really answer this question, is how much does God love you? But this one's even harder. Why did he love you? That's even harder than that one. And, you know, you make a grave mistake if you answer this question because of any of your circumstances or your worth in life. People's biggest problem today with the love of God is what's going on in my life. And they equate that to how much God loves them. And, you know, you have to be taught the sovereignty of God and that he's in control of all things and things like that. But you cannot equate your circumstances or what you are worth in life concerning how much God loves you. Just because you go through adversity and trouble in this life does not mean God does not love you. Also, just because you're prosperous and you're happy and life is going well does not mean God loves you. But God is actively and lovingly involved in our lives, whether it's going good or whether it's going bad. And, you know, he's controlling everything that we face in this life. And a lot of people think that if things are going good, God loves me. And then they'll get to a point where they'll hit a rough spot in their life and they'll say, God doesn't love me no more. You say, well, what do you tell them as a pastor? According to the word of God, he's loved you with an everlasting love. And according to the word of God, his never his love never runs out. Hebrews 12, 6, you know, as we go to the table this morning, he lovingly as our father chastens us for our profit that we may partake of his holiness. And when he chastens us, he's working all this together for good for our souls. It's hard to understand it, but chastening is proof that we belong to him and that he loves us. Now, I know you can get whole teachings on that, but that's the love of God that we don't like is when he straightens us out, is when he corrects us. That's the part of his love we don't like. But a lot of people will be taught in this day and time we live that God loves you and he wants you to prosper and he wants you this, that, the other. God loves you and he might not ever let you prosper simply because if you did prosper to where you wanted to prosper, you may not be in heaven. Why? Because you might forsake him. I know God puts roadblocks in our lives. And I know he puts roadblocks. I know he's put some in my life. And I know and I look back at my life. He did it because he loved me. He did it because he was preserving me as I saw these roadblocks in my life as I look back. And I was crying like a newborn baby when some of this stuff happened in my life. But now that I look back, I see where things could have gone. And God said, nope, nope, nope. And so you're, 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 you're immediately telling yourself, he's not answering prayer. God doesn't answer prayer. You know, he doesn't love me no one, all these kind of crazy thoughts. Now, what God is doing when you see these things happening in your life, he's working all things together for your eternal good. God's not looking at how good it's going to be today or tomorrow. He can see it. 
God's looking out at eternity and where are we going to spend eternity. And God is saying that I am going to preserve you to all eternity. You will step your feet into heaven because I had loving control of your life. A lot of times we think we're controlling it. No. God's lovingly controlling our lives. We have to use the means and everything that he gives, but he's not going to let you overstep the bounds that would actually put you in hell. God loves you. Well, how do we know that God is love? And I want to, this is the main thing I want to say today because we're going to the table of the Lord today is because of what he has done in our redemption. You know, we know God is love. We know the greatness of that love through the work of redemption through Jesus Christ. You're able to believe in Christ today because God loves you. We love him, John says, because he first loved us. And, you know, when you talk about election, because some people talk about the doctrine of election, but it's just an old, dry, dull doctrine. You know what I see in the election? Undeserved, unmerited love of God. God chose us when we were undeserving, unloving. And you say, well, why did he do it? For absolutely no reason at all. Now, he had a reason within himself. But it was nothing good in us, and it never would have been nothing good in us if God hadn't loved us. Now, you love Christ this morning because that God loved you. And that's what John would tell us. And he clearly says that the love of God was manifested toward us. You can clearly see God's love because God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. God's love is made visible to us at the cross of Calvary when he sent his son into this world. Now, there are other manifestations of God's divine love throughout the word of God. And John knew that and all through the Old Testament. But what John is saying is, is that the supreme revelation of God's love has been given in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the very doctrine that the Gnostic heretics were trying to deny when John wrote this letter. So he uses similar language in John three sixteen for God so loved the world. And then he says this, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, if you read the whole context of this letter, I'll just say this this morning. People I've been preaching to, they understand what I'm saying. There is no gospel to preach without the incarnation of Christ. You have no gospel to preach. You know, if Jesus Christ did not come into the world, you know, to save sinners, you don't have a gospel. But he did come into the world. And that was proof of God's love for the world. Second thing he shows is the greatness of his love for his people. And that was his gift that he gave his people. And you know what that gift is. His only begotten son. God was willing to offer up his very best upon the altar for our sakes. You know, I can't understand everything that was happening at Calvary. But God gave up the one who was closest and dearest to his heart. And that was his son. I thought about it as Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Abraham was going to do it. I believe that he was going to do that. 
And it says that he was going to sacrifice his only son whom he loved. And that's exactly what God did on our behalf. Now, God stopped him, but, you know, Christ went on to the cross at Calvary. Calvin says this about that. He says, for the sake of amplifying, he said, in this, he more clearly shows personally how much he loves us because he was willing to expose his only son to death for our sakes. And when they talk about the only begotten son of God, it's not talked about he was uh, born or birthed or things like that. But the primary idea is his uniqueness, that he was in the bosom of the father. He was the one that God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that proves the magnitude of his love for us. Think about it this morning. There was no gift of God that was more conceivable as precious than the gift of his only begotten son. And one man says this, he said, when Christ went to the cross at Calvary, he said, it is, it is God's own bleeding heart that lays love on the altar when he offers up his only begotten son. What you need to do as you're a Christian, you need to study the unsearchable riches of Christ. You need to study what God has done. Because the more I study it, the more I love him and the more I see what he has done. I try to not over busy myself with life to the point that I don't see the work that God did to his son just to save a rest like me. But it's good to study the doctrines of Christ. Because if it wasn't for him, we'd have no salvation. Another thing, the greatness of God's love is seen in the purpose of the mission of the son. And I won't be staying long on these things. He says that we might live through him and have life through him. That's his mission. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave up this most precious gift to deliver us from a sinner's hell. I like what the word of God said in John three seventeen. for God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world or to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So when he sent Jesus at his first advent, it's simple this morning, and we'll think about this when we go to the table this morning, is he sent him for number one to save sinners. That would be the primary goal. But he sent him into this world to go to the cross and accomplish the mission that was determined in the eons of eternity. He came for us. John 17, God gave Christ a people to die for. And that's why Paul says in Colossians 2, because he loved me and gave himself for me. And I'm telling y'all that this morning, because when we talk about loving one another, you have to think about God's love for you. Because you have no motive to love one another until you think about how God loved you. You have no motive to forgive one another until you think about how God loved you. You know, if you're a husband and wife here today, one of the ways that you need to show your love as a Christian brother or sister is in the house. And sometimes Bernice and now we, we have a few words. <laughs> if you're married, you had a few words. But anyway, but here's where I look at her. She's my dear, beloved wife. 
But you know what I look at her as even more than that? My sister in the Lord. And it makes me relate to her different when I'm on my good days than I do, you know, when I just say she's just my wife and we just had an argument, I'm going to overcome this and all that. No, she's a sister in the Lord, you know. We'll be in heaven together, you know. There'll be no marriage or giving it marriage in heaven. I don't understand all that right there. But I know this, God saved her just like he saved me. And I'm to love her, not only as my wife, you know, love her like Christ loved the church, but I'm also to love her as a sister and you to love your husband as a brother in the Lord. And I think sometimes we get so busy with family matters that we don't look at it that way. You know, we just think about it from the earthly side of things. But we're one in Christ and we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. So John goes on to say, in this is love, not that we loved him, but he first loved us. And that is, that's such a mystery is why God loved us. You know, we sing that hymn, how sweet and awful is the place. And some of the words of that hymn, especially when he says this, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? I can answer all those questions because of the love of God. Because of the love of God. And I think about it all the time. I think about all my friends I grew up with and everybody that was around me that are still in the world. And I don't want them to stay there. I want them to be saved. And I'm going, why me? And there's no, there's, you can't come up with a reason. In fact, I was worse than some of them. If not all of them, you know, I was worse. And so you ask this question, why me? Because he loved you. And that's the way we should look when we love one another. Now, although we did not love God, he loved us because it was unconditional. He freely loved us, and he loved us before we were ever born. And one more thing, we see the greatness of God's love, or two more things. And I I sound redundant this morning because of the sacrificial lamb, the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Yes, he shows his greatest example of love for us in the sacrifice of his son. He loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atoning, wrath-bearing sacrifice, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. This love was costly at this self-sacrificing love for sinners. It was a bloody, brutal, humiliating sacrifice. I can't imagine what it looked like at the cross. You know, Isaiah said he was, mar- he was marred more than any man. Like you couldn't even recognize who he was, or the man that he was. And so it was a cruel death and he suffered death. But we would never be accepted before God except he went to that cross. And the last thing this morning is the recipients of this love. And this is key this morning. Because, and I, this is a very simple point, because we have been saved by that sacrifice, and this is real simple, we should love one another. We are obligated to love one another. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. Yes, it does. 
because John is saying that we are obligated because we ought to love one another and there's because of what Christ has done and there are no excuses or exceptions. We have a moral obligation to love one another because God so loved us. Pastor Jim back at the church in Louisville, he did a series on the one another's and he went through the Bible and showed all the one another's and how we need to deal with each other in all these situations in life. And it was really good because in every one another that he showed us, it involved love. And And one of those is that you need to love one another, but it involved love because God's love for us should be the motivating uh, and the example, the motivating and example to mutually love one another. It should motivate you to do that. You know, it should motivate us to love one another when we don't want to love one another. When you don't want to love one another, always take a peek at the cross. And when you look at the cross, it should help soften your heart and cause you to love one another. The price has been paid that we can do it. And the day is coming where we're going to see perfect love without spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing amongst the people of God. And because of what Christ has done, we ought to love one another. You say, well, I have a hard time doing that. Well, you got one or two problems. You really don't know what the word of God says about it, or you need to be saved. And I tell people all the time, this is not optional. This is a command from God. And John He walked close to Christ. You know, if you read the word of God, you will see that he was a close companion to the Lord Jesus Christ. John walked with love himself. And that's why he knows so much and talks so much about love. But I'll say what John says this morning as I close down. If you do this, it's enough. You know why? Because it'll cover a multitude of sins. You're not going to have no problem in the church. If you love one another, I'm not saying problems won't come up, but it'll solve all problems if you love one another. People say, I just can't love them. I, they're so awful and stuff. You know, what if Christ didn't love you because you were so awful and you was this and you was that? Now, you have to look at people through the eyes of the love of God for you. And that's why I look at people. You know, when I look at this world today and you see people in the world, you say, it's hopeless. I, I never think it's hopeless for God to save anybody. You say, why would you think that? Because he saved me. That's why. And so I look back and say, look what he did for me. And I know he can do it for them. And so we live in a world that's challenged with love and things like this. I've never seen so much hate in the world that's in the, in the world right now. But the healing will come through the love of Christ. And the beautiful gospel preached to a lost and dying world. The greatest thing that will hold, I said, I tell the people at church, I said, the glue that holds the church together, you know, other than Christ and the Holy Spirit, is love. It holds it together. If that ever gets broken, if the chain is broken and people get these attitudes and do this, that, the other, eventually a church will just unwind and come apart. Now, you're obligated to love one another. Didn't say you had to compromise truth. I didn't say that, you know, you had to sin to love one another. Nothing like that. I'm just saying you need to display agape love to one another. 
And if you want a great example of what it is, read 1 Corinthians 13, and you'll see what love is. Because the longer you're a Christian, you're going to have to display it more and more and more. So Christ died for us. We ought to love one another. Now, before, we, before our brother comes up, this love leads to this. That's Christ's love for us. And we'll be remembering that this morning, that great sacrifice on our behalf. But this also points to fellowship with one another. And, you know, we're going to fellowship over the broken body and the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we come together to take the Lord's Supper, it ought to tighten up our love for one another. It ought to make us think of how much we love each other. We go to the table today. You should think about how much you love Christ for what he's done. But you know what else you should think about? How much we love one another because we're all a part of the family of God. And we're fellowshipping over the broken body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as I said earlier, it's because he first loved us. And that's what this is about this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the broken body and the shed blood of your son. Father, we thank you that you first loved us, and because of that, we can love one another. Father, we need to learn love. We learn it through experience. We learn it by your spirit. We learn it by your word. But we pray that you give us a heart to continue to love one another more. Father, we know that the message of the gospel is a simple message, but it's a, it's a message that does a work in our hearts. And Father, we pray that you will continue that deep work in our heart so that we can truly love one another as Christ loved us. We thank you that we can be in your house this day. <clears throat> and we do pray that those who are here today that do not know the love of God, that this will be the day that they will experience it in salvation through your son. Father, we thank you that the power rests with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.